Good morning. We're going to dismiss the kids. If we've got any kids here this morning who need to go out, Jesse is back. Is that Jesse? Hey, Jesse's back there for all the kids. Enjoy Children's Church. There they go. Well, over the past few weeks, uh, we've been moving rather slowly through five particular verses in the book of Romans. Aren't you glad? Praise the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13, and we've been going through them very slowly for a very important reason, because in those five verses, there are 13, count them, 13 commands that Paul relays to us that relate to how we ought to be operating within the local body of Christ. 13 distinct commands. And in today's verse, which includes the last two of these 13 commands, we have a really, really strong call to true, genuine, biblical community. And of course, the key to establishing and building true biblical community is to know each other, to be familiar with each other, to be well acquainted with one another in the local body. And we have a chance, based on the size of our body, there's no excuse for us not to be, right? Now, I know a bunch of us already taken off for the summer. We had graduation and our students went poof, the diaspora, right? But here we are, the rest of us, praise the Lord, that's good. But we've got to know each other. Now, if I were to take a poll of the audience this morning and I were to ask this question, are we supposed to love and serve each other in the body? My guess is I would get a 100% perfect score because everybody knows that's true, right? Of course we're to love and serve each other. But knowing that and practicing it are far too often two completely different things. If we're to love and serve others in the body, we have to know each other. We have to be familiar with one another, with, with our lives, with our families. We can only love and serve other people to the degree that we truly know something about them. This is one of the reasons why the leaders here at Oak Hill constantly put an emphasis on things like being consistently present on Sunday mornings, both to work alongside each other in our service and also to worship together. This is why it matters that we think you should commit to membership in the body to say, here are 10 ways that we are committed to one another. It's why being a part of of a community group, a vibrant member of a community group, and serving on a ministry team makes a real difference. These, These are the places where meaningful conversations take place. You guys probably know this. It's easy these days in this culture we live in to skate through life on the surface, right? But in those places, when we talk about here on Sunday mornings, as we worship together, as we study God's word, we talk about community groups, we talk about serving together on ministry teams, that's where meaningful stuff happens. Those are the places where we can go beyond a handshake and a simple good morning. It's where true fellowship is established. Those are the places where mutually healthy relationships can flourish. Those are the times and places where we learn more about each other, what our strengths and weaknesses are, where we get to know what each other's needs are so that we can pray effectively for one another. In short, that's a biblical description of the Christian life. In fact, the Bible has no other way to describe the Christian life than really knowing the people you're worshiping next to. The whole 21st century American view of this barely connected, surfacey, pop in and pop out, megachurch kind of life is utterly foreign to the New Testament. You simply won't find it in the Bible. We're to worship with and alongside people that we truly know and people that know something about us. We're to worship with people that we've prayed with and prayed for. We're to worship with people who we've celebrated life's victories with and cried over 
the challenges that we face. We're to worship with people who we've invited into our homes and to whose homes we've been in. We're to worship with people that we've taught and been taught by. We're to worship with people whose story we know and who, people who know our story. We're to worship with people whom we seek to grow in familiarity with and who we truly long to live perhaps the rest of our lives with. And it's that type of long-term commitment and love that makes worshiping together in a body like this so sweet and living life together so rich. That's the way the Bible describes the Christian life. So we're going to learn more about that today. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans 12 if you're not already there. And we're going to look at verse 13, but I want you to back up to verse 9. We're going to look at the final two commands of these 13 short imperatives that Paul gives us in this chapter. Now let's remember where verses 9 to 13 flow out of. We always have to make sure we don't disconnect and isolate certain ideas apart from the context, apart from the flow of where the letter has been. So previous to verse 9, Paul has been telling the church about what it means to present every part of you as a living sacrifice to God. Your body, your soul, your mind, all of us as living and holy sacrifices to God. That, he says, is our spiritual response or our rational response to the mercy that we've been shown. And, And I love that picture. Like, look, God is lavished you with mercy, so the rational thing to do would be to to live as a sacrifice for him. That we would not allow ourselves to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by aligning our minds with the will of God, seeing life the way he sees it. And as we operate within the church, that we would not think more highly of ourselves than we should, but instead to humble ourselves and seek to serve one another, putting the needs of others before our own, and employing all the spiritual gifts that God has given to each local body, employing those for the good of others, for the building up of us together. And so we come to the first phrase in verse 9, and that really sets the tone for all 13 of these commands. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. See it there? Better translated, let love be genuine among believers. Guys, that is a foundational truth. Love ought to be real, sincere, and genuine. And that sets the tone for all the rest of the commands that we see here. Paul continues in verse 9. Abhor what is evil. Don't just see it. Abhor it. Hate it. Detest it. Cling to what is good. What is good? Whatever God's will is. Cling to it. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We're family. Give preference to one another in honor. Put others first. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence. In other words, not getting lazy as we're all prone to do, but be fervent or zealous in spirit as we serve the Lord. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope. We looked at it last week. Hope in what? Hope in what lies ahead of us, what God has promised to us that we'll inherit someday. We can rejoice even in the hard things of life, rejoicing in that hope of what God has for us. Persevering in tribulation. How can we endure in the midst of the difficulties of life, the ups and downs of life? Well, once again, we rejoice in that hope that we have and finally being devoted to prayer. That's how we we express tangibly our, our trust in God as we come to him in prayer and we pour out our hearts and say, Lord, it's tough down here. Help me to persevere. Help me to rejoice in the midst of tribulation. And now our final verse for this morning, verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. 
Now, we've talked about giving fairly recently, so I'm really going to focus more on that second phrase, but let's look at those two things. Let's break down those two phrases and see how they relate to living life together here at Oak Hill. In that one short little verse, Paul does something pretty radical. He calls for two particular expressions of brotherly love, both of which I would call invasive into our lives. Invasive in the sense that they threaten two things that Americans hold dear. Two things that Americans generally like to keep to themselves, like to hide from other people, protect them. Number one is the wallet, and number two is the home. Pretty invasive, our wallets and our homes. So when Paul said, hey, present your bodies, present all of you to God as a living sacrifice, yeah, it included that, your money and your home. In our self-centered, self-indulgent society, most people would look at that and they'd say, hey, stay out of my business. Stay out of my business, pastor. I work hard for my money. I want to keep it for myself, and I'll spend it as I please. And as far as my home is concerned, that's my castle. That's my man cave. That's my, that's my fortress. That's where I retreat to get away from the world, so just, just keep out of there. But as Christians, we know we can't do that, right? Now, I know I've used this term a million times already in the book of Romans. We're called to be different, countercultural. As the culture is saying all those things, we say, uh-uh, that's not us. We do things differently because God's called us to be different. So that means we do things that would make the average non-believing American say, why do you do that? How many of you guys have had that experience? Like, why do you give money to your church? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it shouldn't make sense to an unbeliever. Why do you do that? So, first of all, Paul says this, we're to generously share our resources with other believers. We're to contribute to the needs of God's people, he writes. Now, the verb there for contribute comes from the root of the Greek word for fellowship that we know well, koinonia. It's koinoneo, and it literally means to come into fellowship with. As we contribute to the needs of the saints, we come into fellowship with them. In this context, it means to, to be a sharer with them or a partner with them in this thing. And so if our love is going to be without hypocrisy, if it's going to be genuine, then we're going to look for and respond to the practical needs of our brothers and sisters. We hear about a need, we say, here I am. There's a need for whatever it might be, a meal, or somebody's behind on their bills, and I can meet that need, we say, here I am. That's what we do in the body of Christ. We're going to look for those things, and we're going to try to meet practical needs. Now, first and foremost, here in the local church, but even beyond that. To believers that live in other cities and other counties, even other countries, whenever needs arise and we sense the Spirit moving us, and sometimes we sense the Spirit moving us and we say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give some encouragement, I'll say some kind words, and that's good, I'll pray, and that's good, but sometimes the Spirit says what? Take action. Actually go and do something to meet that practical need. Now listen, we do this pretty well at Oak Hill, better than any church I've ever been a part of. This church loves to meet the needs of the saints, but we can do better. How can we do better? In the sense that sometimes the, the, the group of people that are meeting these practical needs tends to be the same group that does it all the time. So the more we can spread out that work, the more that every person in this room takes responsibility for this command and looks to meet practical needs, the better we're all going to be, the healthier we're going to be as a body. How we use our finances to meet practical needs amongst one another is important to God. It's important to him. Why? Well, he desires that we lay up treasures in heaven, not on the earth. 
It's a reflection of what we really love. How we handle our finances, I know I'm repeating myself because we've recently covered this, but how we handle our finances tells the world what we really love. If I open up your checkbook or, your, or I go online and see your statement, I can tell something about what you really love. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart will be also. Isn't that true? Don't you love how Jesus can say something 2,000 years ago to an ancient audience, and it's just as true today in 2019. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So God loves a cheerful giver. He loves one who gives generously and joyfully. He loves to see us sharing with one another. Remember, and listen, if you're a parent, you know this. One of the, one of the greatest things for mom or dad is when they see their, their children interacting together, sharing life together, loving each other. It's, it's, it just brings tears to your eyes. That's the way God looks down. He sees Oak Hill Bible Church, and he says, look at how they're loving each other. Look how that person has a need, and this person, I've given them the resources to meet that need. Look, they're doing it. Oh, man, not just a kind word, but actually doing it, taking action, meeting practical needs. God prospers us so that we can give, not keep. He prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. And that's the way of life for a Christian. Guys, that is Christianity 101. But again, to the outside world, that's a pretty radical way to live, that we'd be willing to give away our resources to meet the needs of another. But that's what we're called to do. Now, the second phrase that we see here in, in, in verse 13 employs uh, language that instructs us to be hospitable. That means we're to open up both our homes and our lives to other people in the family of God. Not just to our closest friends, by the way, because we're all pretty good at that. Like, I've got my little clique of friends, my little closest friends. I love to, to get together with them, but it's more than that. In fact, the Greek word for hospitality here means love of strangers, or love of guests. What that means is, is we can't just circle the wagons with our closest friends, but we've got to go out of our way to show practical love to people in the body who we don't know well or don't know at all. Look, it's comfortable and easy to say, hey, to your closest friends, let's go grab a meal or, or come over to my house. True hospitality in the biblical sense means going beyond what is comfortable for all of us. Opening the door to folks we ought to know better. And then just to add a little spice to this verse, if you take a look at what Paul says here, he uses the English word practice, practice hospitality. That's a particular Greek verb, dioko. And practice in the English is not, it's too passive of a word for what Paul's really saying here in the Greek. It's a much more aggressive word. It means pursue this. It means see it and get after it. Be aggressive in pursuing hospitality. Make it a priority. It goes back to what he said earlier. Love the brothers with a genuine love and a fervent spirit. Be zealous about this thing. Be aggressive. Pursue hospitality. Make sense? Now, before I go any further, we're going to get really practical about this. Like, how do you actually do these things? But before we do that, before I show you why you should pay attention to this command and why you should more vigorously uh, pursue living it out, one of the most important things we can do is to look for the theological foundation for it. Where does, where does this ground it in, this whole idea? Because, you know, writing a check, uh, welcoming people to your home, really practical stuff, but there's an important theological grounding, and here it is. You ready? If you don't remember anything else I say today, remember this. God's generosity and God's hospitality toward you is the ground for your generosity and hospitality towards others. 
It always starts with him, doesn't it? And the way he's been generous and hospitable to you is why you should turn around and be generous and hospitable to others. Now, I probably don't have to prove that statement because if you're a true believer, you hear that and you're like, yeah, I get that. That resonates with me. You don't have to prove that, but still, it's worth our time this morning to sort of explore that a little bit so that we catch the full weight of what I just said. So let me try to do that. Number one, God has been inexhaustibly generous to you. That's an amen moment. He has been inexhaustibly generous to you, so generous that there really aren't words that we can use to describe it. Isn't that true? Think of this. He refused to spare even his one and only son, but gave him up for your sake. And even while you were living in rebellion against him as his enemy, not honoring him, not giving thanks to him, exchanging the truth about him for a lie of your own making, as you were worshiping created things and bowing down to personal idols, in the midst of all that, God went to work in your heart, generously drawing you to himself, generously changing the affections of your heart, generously washing away your sins by his own sacrifice, and generously declaring you righteous in his sight. Was he obligated to any of that? Was there anything that forced God to do that for you? Absolutely not. Did you earn that in any way? No. Were you deserving of that type of love? No. God graciously willed, catch that, graciously willed to be eternally generous towards you. And God has been infinitely hospitable to you. Infinitely hospitable to you. He himself swung open the door of salvation to you. You could not have forced your way in. He welcomed you, invited you into his presence. He brought you to the doorstep of his kingdom. Were you likable at that time? No. Were you cleaned up and worthy of entering into the king's house? No. But not only did he take you in, he then adopted you as his son or daughter. He brought you into his very family and then made you an heir to everything that he possesses. Who does that? Seriously, who does that? Who welcomes an enemy into his home, forgives them of their rebellion, and then says, hey, stick around and be part of my family. And by the way, everything you see here, would you like to inherit it? And so it's worth stepping back for a moment and reflecting on those truths. And then to ask yourself some tough questions. In light of what God has done for me, why in the past have I withheld generosity towards others? How could I not bend over backwards to be hospitable to others in response to how hospitable God has been to me? This is the theological ground of why we're to do these things. It brings us back to the foundational statement of this entire section of chapter 12, Back up in verse 1 when Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, do these things. In view of the mercies of God in your life, be this type of people. By the lavish generosity of God in washing away your sins and by the endless hospitality of God bringing you into his house and adopting you as his child, contribute to the needs of the saints that are in your local church body. Practice Pursue hospitality and show genuine love to those who are with you. Man, that seems like a really small thing compared to what he's done for us. 
right? Am I right? Seriously? I mean, that, that's it, God? After all that, what you've done, that, okay. I mean, that ought to be our reaction in our hearts right now. Okay, absolutely. Absolutely, I should do that. By the way, do you see a connection here with the communion table as well? How generous God is, how hospitable he is. In establishing the principle of a regular observance of communion, Christ is continuing to paint a picture for those of us who are still on the earth of what it's going to be like someday. He says, child, come to my table. Partake of my generosity. My body broken for you. My blood shed for your sins so that we might have true fellowship together. He says, child, come to my table. I've opened the door to you. Partake of my hospitality. Someday we're going to get to do this face-to-face. But for now, in the meantime, I want you at my table, all of you together as one body. Come and enjoy. And so even in this teaching, we have the communion table in view. And we get to live that out every single month together as a body. Now, where do we see these principles in Scripture? These principles of generosity and hospitality. Can I just say this? Everywhere. Everywhere in Scripture. Remember, in biblical times, there was no Motel 6. There was no chain of hotels that if you were traveling, you know, when you travel back then, you didn't hop into your car. You got on an animal or you walked. Right? And, and there wasn't a, a chain of motels that you could just stay the night in. So the believers, the saints, whether they were Jewish or Christian, they relied on one another for hospitality. They relied on people being generous for survival. It's interesting, the same spirit is still present in the Middle East today. When I went to Israel back in January, our group visited a Bedouin family uh, who lived uh, on a camel ranch about 10 miles outside of Beersheba in the middle of nowhere in the desert. If I showed you a picture, you're like, uh, people can't live there. I mean, it's nuts. And we went there to ride camels because that's what you do when you're in the desert and you're in Israel, you ride camels. But this family we met They were just renting the camels to us for a couple of hours so we could experience that. But they weren't going to let us just ride camels. They said, no, come into our tents. Come into our tents. We want to feed you. We want to give you food and drink. Fellowship with us. Now, I don't think these were even believers, not Christians, but still they had this great spirit of generosity and hospitality. I talked to the tour leader about it afterwards. He said, look, this is just, I've known these people for, for a long, long time. This is just who they are. The, the price that we pay is just for the camels. This is just generosity. I was amazed by that. So they brought us into these tents. These are poor people. And, and uh, the dad was off herding the camels, doing his thing, making all the noises and slobbering and all that. And, and, and the mom came in and she was checking on people. She was greeting people. She didn't speak a lot of English. Her two sons came in and served us Turkish coffee and baklava. Amazing, so delicious big smiles on their face. It was a great joy for them to serve us and to be generous towards us. Hear me now. These are not folks who had a lot to give. These are very poor people. Their standard of living and lifestyle is not one that any person in this room would want to trade for. But they were full of joy at the prospect of being generous and being hospitable to travelers like us. And so we see that spirit throughout the Old Testament in Jewish culture. Genesis 18, Abraham entertains Three guests, and we find out in the story that one of those three guests is actually the Lord. And he fetches water to do what? To wash their feet. And he has Sarah, his wife, prepare bread cakes for them. He even instructs one of his servants to slaughter the choicest animal from his herd for these three guests. 
Very generous, very hospitable. Genesis 19, Lot invites two visitors, and, and they just want to you know, slide in and slide out. He insists that they stay the night. Please stay with me multiple times. Stay the night. I want to extend hospitality to you. He washes their feet. The text says that he prepares a feast for them. And later that night, and, and you probably know the story, the townspeople circle the house and start making threats against the travelers and his daughters. And for him, hospitality means protection. He literally protects the people from the townspeople. In the book of Joshua, Rahab, Rahab offers lodging and protection to the Israelite spies. She literally puts her own life on the line to be hospitable to the spies. 1 Samuel 25, Abigail responds to a crisis, showing great discernment as she gives amazing hospitality to David and his men in the wilderness. Listen to how generous she was. She sent to David's men 200 loaves of bread, two large jugs of wine, five sheep, five measures of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. In English, that just means a lot of stuff. Generous. In 1 Kings 17, we see the opposite scenario. Not generosity from wealth, but generosity from poverty. There's this, this widow up in the Sidonian town that, that meets Elijah. And Elijah comes and says, I need some water and some bread. And the text says she gave, her, she gave him everything she had, even though she and her son were facing starvation. That's what it meant to welcome a stranger and to be hospitable. Take everything I have, I will trust the Lord for the rest. Wow, what a lesson. And because of her faithfulness and her generosity, the text says that she received ongoing miraculous provision from the hand of Yahweh. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, we see either you know, generosity and hospitality or a lack thereof. And there's a correspondence with people's character, either godly or, or wicked. And so there's a correlation there. So for the people of God, this is this is not just a nice little aside. This is fundamental to who we are as the people of God. Now, what about the New Testament? Does that carry over? Nod your heads. Yeah, it's everywhere in the New Testament. When Jesus wants to illustrate for his disciples what it means to fulfill the law of love, he tells a story of generosity and hospitality, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's, that's a big part of what that story is about. The Samaritan lifts up his beaten Jewish neighbor and cares for him, takes him to a place to recover, bandages his wounds, and even from his own pockets pays to have him taken care of. And so we learn this is what love is, compassion and care and generosity and hospitality. In Matthew 10, when Jesus sends out the 12 to minister in his name, he tells them, don't store up money, don't store up supplies, go into each town and find people who will extend hospitality to you. And so that was a, that's a, the very beginning of the gospel mission. Hospitality is a big part of it. But there's so much more to that story. Jesus says, look, there's more going on than you might think. This is not just practical. So hear me on this. When we extend hospitality to others in the body, there's something supernatural going on. We may think, oh, I just, I just gave the guy some Oreos. <laughs> he had a cup of coffee from my coffee pot. Big deal. No, there's something more going on. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever receives you, receives me, is what he told his 12. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. In other words, generosity and hospitality extended to God's people is a ministry to God himself. Oh, if we would just see that more often. 
If we would just understand more often that that's really what we're doing. As we serve each other, we're ministering to God himself. It's a big deal. It's an act of worship, people. It's an act of worship when we serve one another in the body. So it shouldn't surprise us then that when Jesus identifies the things that would be evidence for us on the day of judgment, he includes hospitality. You know this verse, Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Woo! Right? Here comes the eternal reward. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Catch the connection there? If you're a true follower of Jesus Christ who expects one day to inherit the kingdom and all that God promises his children, that's going to be a characteristic of your life. That you exhibited a radical Christ-honoring spirit of generosity and hospitality. So, lest you came here this morning going, oh, you read ahead, you're like, oh, hospitality, that's a nice little thing. That's a, that's a nice thing that we do for each other in the church. That's kind of a neat little tradition. It's the polite thing to do. I want you to renew your thinking on this. It's far more than that. It is integral and central to the Christian faith. And in fact, it's essential for leaders in the church. Did you know that? If you look at the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, sandwiched right between respectable and able to teach is one word, hospitable. Men, I hate to tell you this because oftentimes in the church, especially in the conservative church, you ladies, you feel all the weight of this, don't you? Guys, hello. Elders, men in the church are to be hospitable. We are the ones to take leadership on this. It's not something we dump on our wives. Men, we take leadership for this. Elders are to be hospitable. Paul wants churches to look for men who are generous and hospitable to lead his church. So elders and pastors don't have the luxury of teaching the people and then saying, okay, good, I'm going to go back to my house and retreat to my fortress and have my privacy. Nope. We don't get to say, do this or do that, and then, well, look, I'm too busy leading and teaching to, to be hospitable. I'm too busy doing the important things in the church to be generous and hospitable. Hypocrites. That's what it is. It's hypocrisy. Spurgeon said it best. He said this, elders should have well-worn houses with people coming and going. So if you're an elder here at Oak Hill or you aspire to be an elder someday, let me read that again. Elders should have well-worn houses with people coming and going. That's what leadership is. I'll give you one final example of how important this is and we'll move on. In his first epistle in chapter four, Peter writes this. He says, the end of all things is near. So for in the last days, begs the question, all right, well, okay, the end is near. What should we be doing? He says this, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So of all things, as we see the day drawing near, keep fervent in your love for one another. And we hear echoes of Romans 12 in that, right? Where Paul said, let love be genuine, be fervent in spirit as you serve the Lord. And then Peter says, do this, this loving thing in two ways. Number one, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And second, as each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another. So 
honestly, I, I asked myself as I, as I reviewed that, I was like, okay, if somebody walked up and said, look, I've got some inside scoop, everything is about to end. I mean, it's coming. It, we are right on the verge of it. So Jeff, what do you think you should be doing? I'm not sure I would say be hospitable. I'm not sure that'd be the first thing on my list, but that's what Peter says. That's how important it is. Be hospitable and serve one another. How many of us would answer that way? God loves a cheerful giver, friends, and he loves a joyful host. That's what we get from this passage. Now, let's ask the question, why don't we do this well? Okay, so this is transparency time. Okay, so as I go through these, I want you to think about where your heart lies related to your wallet in your home. And it's okay to let the Spirit do a little work in there to feel a little, ouch, that's okay, it's good. I, look, every time I get up here and preach, I go through the process myself, I feel the ouches, I just get to relate to you. So much fun. It's okay, but let's be transparent in our hearts. Let's not lie to the Holy Spirit. Let's be honest. You don't have to shout it out loud, say, yep, that's me. But let it sink in, let the Spirit speak to your heart. Here's a whole host of reasons why we don't do this well. Number one, we're oblivious. And I say that with the best possible way, with, with no anger in my heart. Some folks, they're Christian, they just haven't been taught this before. But now you're on notice. So if you've been oblivious, know this. This is a big deal for God. Okay? Second, some Christians are careless about it. This is more common. They're just careless about it. Here's what I mean by that. Folks in the church who vaguely understand this principle, that they should be generous and they should be hospitable, they've read about it in Scripture, they've just never gotten around to doing anything about it. Now, whether that's intentional or unintentional, they just haven't gotten around to doing it. It's rattling around somewhere up there in their head and in their heart, but they haven't taken any intentional step of obedience in this area. They haven't planned it. They haven't implemented anything. It's one of those things where, you know, it keeps getting pushed down the to-do list. I'll get around to that someday. I want that someday to be now because it's a big deal. Okay, so we're careless about it. We're just, we sort of shifted that thing to the side. Yeah, there's other things that are more important. This is a big deal. Don't be careless. Third thing, and this is where it gets more serious, is we're stingy. We're greedy. We're still struggling with that. We simply don't want to give. We're not interested in opening up our homes. We really don't want to know people any better than we know them now. We're, we're totally fine with where we're at right now. With who we know, I got my little circle of friends, I'm good. I don't really want to extend myself. We're stingy. We might be born again, but the idols of our heart are still ruling our lives and determining our choices and prioritizing God's kingdom and the needs of others is not on that list. It's just not. To do those things would not be to rejoice, but to groan. It feels like the loss of things that we really want. What we really want, we feel like if we do these things, if we're, if we're more generous, if we're, if we're more hospitable, we're going to have to give up those purchases that we really want to make. We're going to have to maybe give up that vacation that we've been looking forward to, that upgrade to our, our home, whatever it might be. Sure, we love Jesus and we believe the Bible and yeah, of course we look forward to being in heaven someday, but in the meantime, I sort of want to do what I want to do. A lot of Christians like this. 
They crave security and comfort and entertainment and material things. Those are the priorities. And what they don't realize, or perhaps they're suppressing, is that they're living in disobedience. And truth be told, they're missing out on all the blessings and the true joy that come with obeying God in this and giving things away and opening up our homes and having true fellowship, but they're lost and they're locked into these idols of the heart. We've got to break away from those things. We're stingy or greedy. The last thing, and this is probably the most common one, is we're just, guys, we're just full of fear. These things that Paul's calling us to today scare us. Now, why? And the reasons are legion. There's so many. I could spend an hour on this. If we just walk through all the reasons why we're afraid of being generous and why we're afraid of opening up our homes. In terms of giving stuff away, fear focuses on the consequences of not having what we think we have to have. And what if I give away too much and then I don't have what I need? So we get fearful. What's the answer to that? Rely on the promises of God, right? Does he not, has he not promised to meet your needs? In terms of hospitality, and we'll focus on this one because it's so hard for so many of us, we fear so many things when it comes to being hospitable. On one end of the spectrum, some of us fear opening our homes because we're just not proud of where we live. I just don't like my house. It's not big enough. It's not nice enough. If I invited people over, they'd think less of me because my home just doesn't measure up to some of the homes that I've seen in other places in the church. And yet at the heart of biblical hospitality is, is not what your home looks like. It's a, a simple willingness to serve people, not to show off what we have or to be embarrassed by what we don't have. What it does is it demonstrates whom we follow, whom we love. Well, I don't even, even own a home, Jeff. It's a rental. So? That's a poor excuse. Oh, I live in an apartment. Yeah? Does you not have a door? Does your apartment not have a door that you could open? <laughs> but it's so small. Is there a table and chairs? Open it. I mean, really, the excuses and the fears that we have over this, we're, ner- we're a neurotic people. We re- in so many ways, we're just... We're so, I'm going to use the word verklempt over this stuff, right? A little Yiddish for you this morning. We're verklempt. We're like, eh. We're gripping over things we shouldn't be gripping over. Yiddish is always good. We overthink this because of our pride and because of all the hangups that we've acquired over the years. Guys, when you're hospitable, your role isn't to be Martha Stewart, right? With, with this big glamorous house and a six-course meal and all matching China. And why, why do we do that to ourselves? <laughs> We're to provide a simple setting and an opportunity for those who enter our homes to encounter and experience genuine love. That's it. That's the calling. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there's Christians who are so in love with their home that they don't want anybody to come in. They're so afraid that people are going to come in and mess it up. It's another idol. The carpets are going to get dirty. The furniture is going to get worn. What if people spill on my floors? What if children come in, God forbid, and they knock something over? Their home's like a museum. It's not to be touched or disturbed in any way. I said to Tanya this morning, I said, you ever thought about the, the story of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2? 
the four guys they want him to get before Jesus, and they take the roof apart. <laughs> Have you ever thought about being the guy who owns that home? They're taking my roof apart. <laughs> what is going on here? Does anybody ever come back and fix it? I mean, you talk about messing up a house. Would God, listen, would God want you to have an open roof policy in your home? So, yeah, I think so. Has he not promised to meet your needs, even to fix your roof? Yeah, have an open roof policy. Because your home really belongs to him. Did you know that? Even your apartment, your renting, it belongs to him. It's all his. So they ought to be used for gospel mission. We ought to be willing to have our places, our, our, places, our, our homes filled up with people. And yeah, maybe messed up a little bit for gospel mission. Here's another fear. I'll never be a good enough host or hostess. I, I can't really cook. Uh, I don't bake very well. And I know this is probably more prevalent amongst the ladies. Well, they're gonna, I'm going to be judged for this. People are going to look down on me. What are people going to think if I try to bake something and it comes out terribly? Man, we're neurotic, aren't we? When people come over for fellowship, I have a newsflash. They're not interested in what you made to eat. They, they're interested in you. Or they ought to be. And you know what? If they're going to judge you for it, that's their sin. You can leave that with the Lord. Amen? How about this fear? Ah, it's just too much of a burden. Have you seen my schedule? Have you seen my calendar? Why add more chaos to my calendar? Can I just say this? Being overly busy is never an excuse to disobey God. You won't find it in Scripture. For all of us, and I say this as a fellow busy person, for all of us, it's simply a matter of priorities. You have all the time that you need to do God's will. God promises you that question is, do you have the heart to lay aside some things for better things? Right? Lay aside some things for better things to do God's will. That's the question. One more fear. I'm, I'm afraid about the conversation. What do I say to these people? <laughs> what are they going to say to me? What if we can't figure out what to say and it gets super awkward? You know what I'm talking about. If that's your excuse for not being hospitable, it's just a matter of renewing your thinking on this. You've got to be willing to extend yourself beyond what's comfortable. I mean, this really is gospel mission. This is serving one another, going beyond what is comfortable for you, to press through that and to trust God and say, Lord, this is hard for me. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do it anyway because you say it's best for me. And I'm going to push through, even if it's scary. And this challenges the introverts out there. I know some of you guys are introverts. And by the way, you know I'm one of you. I'm an introvert, even though I get up here and preach every Sunday. This challenges all the introverts. Folks, you, got, you guys and, and I, it's work to be with people, right? Introverts, it's, it's, it's draining. It's hard to be with people. But again, I don't see an exception clause in Scripture for introverts. We often make idols out of our personalities. Did you know that? We make idols out of it. We say, listen, well, this is just the way I am, so I can't do that. <laughs> and we say that knowing that God can do anything he wants in and through us. But no, I'm this way. God can't use me. Really? What if we flipped that around and we said, I'm this way, but I'm willing to trust the Lord and to stretch myself to move beyond what's comfortable for me 
and see if God might grow me. See if God might transform me. See if God might do something in me that I never would have imagined. Huh. Sometimes God calls us to do things that hurt. To die to self, right? To work through our weaknesses. So look, that's just a short list of all the, and I would, I would say we're in bondage to those types of fears. We're like, I can't fulfill these obvious commands in scripture because of my fears. Man, it's time to do something about that. So let me share some practical tips, and we'll close with this. Just So how do we do this now? And I'll, and I'll, I'll start by just sharing a little bit of the journey that Tanya and I have been on with this and, and our home, which if you're new to Oak Hill, we affectionately call it Casa No. Okay? Tanya and I have not always been good at this. So, so it takes practice, right? Carol, you'd probably say the same thing. So many of you, you older ladies, older men in the church, it takes practice to get good at this. So we don't expect perfection. We don't expect that everything's going to be perfect, right? We work at it. We grow in it. We haven't been good at this. Tanya will be the first one to tell you that she still stresses over hospitality. It's still hard for her. She's not super confident as a hostess, no matter what she shows on the outside. She's not super confident. But God has grown us in this over the years, mostly by trial and error. And that's one of the things I want to say. Mostly by trial and error. You've got to put yourself out there and do it, mess it up, and then figure it out. And God will use that. When we first bought our house 18 years ago now, we intentionally picked a floor plan that had big open spaces because we thought, you know what, we're going to have church gatherings here. That was literally our heart. And we said, we bought the house and, and God was miraculous in that. And I don't have time for that story. But we said, okay, Lord, this house is your house. And we dedicated it to him. And then life happened. And we're like, wow, this is harder than we thought. And it became overwhelming so quickly. Monday nights, you know, was counseling. And Tuesday nights was community groups. And Wednesday nights was youth group at our house. And Thursdays was elder meetings. And then something usually happened over the weekend. It was like, oh, it was overwhelming. Tanya was exhausted. And here's where we figured out the whole secret to, to hospitality. We said, whatever. It is what it is. It is what it's going to be. God is sovereign. Whatever happens is good enough. And that was a breaking point. That was a turning point for us. We're like, it is what it is. So the timing isn't always great for us, and we get worn out still. Sometimes the house is clean. Sometimes it's not. Sorry about that. You know, if you've gone into our, our powder room and it's been filthy, thank you for not telling us. I mean, I appreciate it because we don't always have time to clean it. Um, sometimes we're able to provide coffee and snacks. Other times we, we just, we haven't stocked it. Chairs, you know, this chairs and tables go up. Chairs and tables goes, goes down. Our garage looks like something out of Sanford and Son. You know what I mean? You guys, oh, you only the older people got that. Our garage just looks like a bomb went off. How's that? Sometimes you have to move furniture in order to host a van. Sometimes everybody leaves and it looks like a tornado went through it. It's fine. It is what it is. Sometimes we're not even there when things happen at our house. That's fine. The point is this. It all belongs to God. So who cares what it looks like? And who cares what people think? If fellowship opportunities happen, it's enough. If relationships grow there, praise the Lord. If he's glorified in the midst of that mess, it's all worth it. 
That's the heart of hospitality. So I want to encourage you with just a couple of bullet points. Number one, let go of your expectations on this. Whatever expectations, either A, you think others will place on you, or B, what you've placed on yourself. Let go of them. If the fear of man is driving you or the fear of opinions is driving you and that's a stumbling block in your life, it's time for you to take that to the Lord and say, God, change me. Let go of those expectations. Here's another tip. Set manageable goals. Look at the season of life that you're in and find a way to start small. Little steps of obedience. You can grow in it later on. But set manageable goals. Maybe, you know, we're at the end of May or, yeah, towards the end of May right now. Maybe you say one time over the summer, I'm going to host two, two families in my home. Set a small goal. And you know what? When you, when you meet that goal, celebrate. Thank you, Lord. It wasn't perfect, but it was enough. Amen? Number three, keep it simple. If you make it a bigger deal than it has to be, chances are you'll back off and never do it. So keep it simple. Remember the goal is love and fellowship, not the presentation and not perfection. In fact, in our house now, the, the mantra of our house is paper plates work. They do. Keep it simple. In fact, be a Mary, not a Martha. You guys remember the story? Right? Both of them were doing good things. What was Martha focused on? Running around, making sure the presentation was good. All the de- she was serving, so we don't want to be too hard on her, but she was not focused correctly. What was Mary doing? Sitting at the master's feet. That's, what a beautiful picture for what hospitality should be. We're not so concerned about the trimmings. We're concerned about what God is doing in our midst. Amen? Number four, if you're going to invite someone to your home and cook a meal, pick one or two meals that you do really well. And it's okay to use them over and over again. This is another secret that Tanya's figured out. She does a couple meals really, really well. Sorry if we've repeated them. It is what it is, right? It's enough. So pick a couple meals, use them over and over. And look, if cooking is too stressful, get stone fire. Pick up stone fire. Pick up some really good Chinese food. If that's too expensive, have a pizza delivered. It's okay. What matters is you're breaking bread with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's enough. Amen? By the way, does hospitality always have to be dinner? No, it could be lunch. It could be a Saturday lunch. It could be, it could be a Sunday lunch. I mean, it can be all kinds of things. Listen, for, I know for some of you guys, you're like, you're single or whatever. You're like, I'm not sure I can do this. It could even mean you taking the initiative to call some people and saying, let's go out to dinner or out to lunch. That too is a form of hospitality because you took leadership on it. You took the initiative. You loved other people enough to pick up the phone. Yes, you can still make calls with those things. Pick up a phone. Okay, you could text them too. But you took the initiative and the leadership to say, I care enough about you to organize this and arrange this. That's a form of hospitality as well. Make sense? Last one. In terms of the conversation, do some planning. If this is your biggest fear, do some planning. Have some good icebreaker questions ready to go so that you're asking questions that lead people to talk a little bit about themselves so that you can get to know them better. A little planning will go a long way. Here's the bottom line. You can craft hospitality in your own unique way that works for you, that is life-giving to you and not life-draining to you. 
There are no hard and fast rules. It's just a matter of showing genuine love to people and saying, can we get together? Can we break bread together in some way? Do it. Trust the Lord in this. What can you do? What sounds enjoyable to you? What's possible in the season of life that you're in? Whatever that is, go and do it. Be hospitable. Be generous. Don't worry about trying to replicate, oh, I've heard so-and-so did this amazing brunch and blah, blah, blah. Let it go. Don't replicate what other people do. You do what you can do. Assess the resources that God is giving you in terms of time and emotional bandwidth and finances and your kids and your house and your table and be generous and be hospitable. Amen? Friends, listen. None of this is rocket science. This is not complicated at all. This is just a matter of the heart. It's just a matter of the heart. Being willing to put others before yourself and to love them with a genuine love. Our finances are not our own and our homes don't really belong to us. They are gifts from the Lord. They're designed to be used for his purposes, for gospel ministry and for kingdom advancement. Friends, this is ground zero for the Christian faith. This is at the core of God's heart that we would love one another this way to be generous and hospitable. But may we be faithful to hear that. Amen? All right, I'm out of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your heart in this. Uh, I pray, God, as the challenge goes out and, and uh, whether we're oblivious or we're careless or we're, we're struggling with greed or we're just afraid, whatever it might be, Lord, that we would now set that aside and trust you more because we've seen what your word says this morning. Thank you for the long track record in the history of, of Scripture that we have that shows that you love a hospitable person, that you love a generous man and a generous woman. May we be those types of people for your glory and for our good as well, Lord, so that we might experience the blessings that you have promised to those of us who obey you, those of us who long to be within your will, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. May it continue to point us towards you. May it continue to challenge our hearts, and may we respond in obedience. We love you. Amen.